If you've tuned into WHI today, your work may be focused on complex patients with complex needs and the challenges your organization faces when working to improve outcomes for these target populations. That's why IHI is proud to invite you to this year's IHI National Forum, where patients and providers gather every year to gain actionable strategies for improving quality in healthcare and learn the tools they'll need to tackle tough challenges, from patient safety and behavioral health to equity and population health management. To help guide you through the forum, we recommend taking a look at our 10 forum tracks over at IHI.org slash forum tracks. Forum tracks are a great way to focus on a specific suite of courses and sessions designed to help you make an impact back at your organization and include mental health and well-being, equity, improving science, and population health. The forum will be held this year in December in Orlando, Florida. I'll be there in my blue shirt, and so will many of the great guests you've heard on WIHI. For more information on the forum, visit IHI.org slash forum or IHI.org slash forum tracks. We hope to see you down in Orlando. Now, here's WIHI. There's no one strategy that will dramatically reduce homelessness in the United States. However, in the past decade, community-based initiatives that emphasize housing first or housing as so foundational uh, for especially the chronically homeless are achieving some real wins across the country, often without a lot of us being aware of it. And here's something else that's a well-kept secret, for some of us at least, improvement science, the very methods that are used by many to make healthcare safer and more effective, has become the cornerstone of one national initiative to reduce homelessness. So how did this come about? And what difference is it making? So here's a hint. Plenty. On this edition of WIHI, we're going to hear from some national organizers who have cut their teeth on QI in order to develop, track, and accelerate best practices to do nothing short of drive homelessness numbers to zero. That's the goal. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Health Improvement, Healthcare Improvement. We do come to you live bi-weekly, and after the show, you can find us on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I also double as IHI's Director of Communications. Our panelists today are part of a national organization called Community Solutions. These organizers look to... Uh, IHI's campaigns, healthcare improvement to change their game plan with success. And now healthcare has a great opportunity to connect with these efforts to help further and sustain the gains. So to introductions in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind you how to make the most of your time with us today. John. All right. uh, Thanks, Madge. Uh, Just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. So on the right of the screen is our chat window. And if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. 
If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. Uh, if that problem keeps up, please let the folks at IHI Customer Service know. We have their number on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I'll, uh, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at ihi.org slash WHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. So you can also email info at ihi.org and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're looking for ways to improve the listener exp experience here on the program. Please take the time after WHI to fill out a quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks a lot, John. And remember, we'll turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway portion of the show. We welcome tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI is the handle and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets, and that gets others involved in the conversation. So let's get going. We have a powerful trio on the phone in at least two locations. In Atlanta today, we have Jake McGuire. He's a principal at Community Solutions, where he co-directs the organization's systems change work. Jake advises and supports partner-led housing efforts on three continents, as well as Community Solutions' Built for, Built for Zero initiative in the United States. Welcome, Jake. Thanks for having me. Connecting with us from Los Angeles, we have Beth Sandor. She's also a principal at Community Solutions and leads the organization's Built for Zero campaign. And we're going to find out more about all of this in just a moment. Beth brings more than 15 years of experience working in the field of supportive housing and community development. Welcome, Beth. Hi, Nat. Hi. <laughs> and last but not least uh, out there, I think you're also in L.A., Nate French is a senior improvement advisor for Community Solutions, working directly with communities to build and improve systems to end homelessness. He is part of what's called the 25 Cities Effort and Built for Zero campaign teams, where he works intensively with local partners using data-driven interventions. Welcome, Nate. Hi, Matt. Great to be here. All right. And here in the studio with me, we've got Ninyan Lewis. She's an executive director at IHI. She leads the organization's programming in such areas as the Triple Aim, population health, population management, primary care, and community-wide improvement efforts. She knows a lot about community solutions and what these folks have been up to. So it's great to have you with us, Ninyan. Always great to be here, Madge. All right. So we're going to get started. So Ninyan has, uh, and I have uh, shared the IHI space for a while and also WIHI. And when we've talked about homelessness on WIHI before, it's more or less been in conjunction with homeless individuals frequenting uh, emergency departments and the desire on the part of ED staff to help address underlying problems, but finally, not being able to do a whole lot more uh, than deal with sometimes the most acute healthcare issues. We've got a very different dynamic in play right now, and Ninyan, I can think of no one better to help sort of uh, help us see where the new trajectory is coming from. Thanks a lot. Hmm. Thanks, Madge. Always happy to be here, as I said. So some of the times I've gotten to chat with you on WHI have been some of my most favorite moments at IHI. Um, when we think back about the last, you know, we're approaching in 2018, 10 years since we released the Triple AIM framework, when we were always thinking about how the promise of the Triple AIM could be fulfilled, we talked about the fact that the battle 
for the AAA was going to be won or lost at the regional level. It was not going to be within a health system. It was not going to be within one sector. And to really think about the overall health and well-being of a population, the context is local. Um, and so what we haven't seen are tons and tons of exemplar communities who have been able to build a new system to better coordinate services for the individuals and families in that community. Um, but there are pockets. And what, what we wanted to do today was to really highlight the work that's happening within housing that's actually bringing multi-stakeholders together to actually create a coordinated system that's sustainable over time to manage the, the inflow and outflow of housing. Um, and in a way, I think that this example is going to be one of the best ones that we have in the country to apply to many other services. We're also testing the same approach now to try and match individuals with available jobs in some of the work that IHI is doing in Northeast Wisconsin. I know in, in Hartford, Connecticut, they're also thinking about jobs. We're also thinking about how does this model that you'll get a chance to hear about today um, complement the Pathways Community Hub model that has arisen within health and healthcare, um, and ultimately realizing that it's naive to think that one organization is going to be able to meet all the needs of an individual and a family. Um, and yet, we tend to think about, especially in healthcare, when we start to think about social determinants of health, we pat ourselves on the back when we start to develop partnerships that are transactional. Um, we can share a registry. I can discharge my patients to your shelter. Um, and yet, there is a promise to go much, much further. And there are exemplars out there, and, and I think the best one is going to be the one that you're going to highlight today. Um, I've had a chance to work with the Community Solutions team for several years now, and the, we collectively think at IHI that some of the results of this improvement work are so rigorous and are, the run charts are so beautiful um, that it makes our hearts sing. And it, meanwhile, it's been sort of under the, under the noses of many of um, the partners that we've had and the audience and, the, and sort of our wheelhouse partner base um, at IHI. And so I feel like today is long overdue to be able to highlight this work. And I'm going to let everyone else on the team highlight it for, for you. Thanks so much, Ninyan, for getting us going. And we're going to come back to Ninyan uh, after we hear from uh, Jake, Nate, and Beth uh, to talk a little bit more about the implications of all this uh, important work for healthcare systems in many, many communities where there are real opportunities here. So we're going to start off with Jake, uh, who's going to help us uh, understand uh, everyone who comes on WIHI has the amazing task of boiling down tremendous amount of work uh, and complexity of what they're doing uh, to fit in the format of this show. So Jake, tell us about the work of Community Solutions and how it has come to be that you are focusing in particular on the chronically homeless and the veterans' homeless populations. Thanks a lot, Jake. Sure. Uh, well, first, let me just say, Madge, uh, I think on behalf of our, our whole team, uh, thanks for having us. Uh, we're WIHI listeners uh, and IHI groupies, so it's uh, it's really fun to be with you guys uh, today. Um, you know, our, our organization, Community Solutions, we exist. Uh, to end homelessness and also sort of the upstream conditions that really feed into homelessness. So we think about downstream where homelessness is already happening, uh, but also how do we go upstream and try to turn off the tap? What would it take to really bend the curve on inflow? Uh, and I think you can kind of divide our, our work into sort of three phases. So I, I thought I might start by just telling really briefly kind of the story of our work and sort of how we've ended up 
where we are today, uh, and hopefully that'll kind of clarify the problem we're working on now. Um, but we started, some of us started on a, a team uh, that uh, I think was doing something fairly intuitive if you want to end homelessness, which was building housing. Uh, our theory of change for a long, long time, uh, this was in New York City in the 90s and early 2000s, was uh, that if you want to end homelessness, you need to increase the supply of housing, which is the thing that we know ends it. Uh, we did that in New York City uh, over a period of about 20 years. We built almost uh, 5,000 units of supportive housing. And the folks in that housing were doing really, really well, which was, was good. It was kind of proving that you, you really could end homelessness for kind of any single person. Um, but wh- what we really saw across New York City was that homelessness as a, a community phenomenon was not going down. It was actually going up. Uh, and part of that was we weren't focusing on the right people. Uh, when you look at the data on homelessness, it turns out uh, not all homelessness is created equal. There is really a group of people that emerges uh, as kind of particularly vulnerable and also as, as kind of a particularly high leverage population to focus on and work with uh, if you want to end homelessness. And that group's called um, the chronically homeless. These are folks that sometimes I say when you think of you know, uh, your, your picture in your mind of a person experiencing homelessness, this is probably who you think of. It's someone who's been out on the street for a long time, probably more than a year. Uh, they're really sick. They may have a physical disability or severe mental illness, uh, substance abuse uh, patterns. Uh, and they also cost our systems the most amount of money. So over 70% of all the money we spend on homelessness goes towards serving this population in emergency rooms, shelters, jails, even though it's just 12% of the total homeless population. Uh, these folks, by and large, were not living in our housing. And the reason for that, we uh, hypothesized, was maybe that the systems and processes that actually governed how people got access to housing were really not designed to be navigable for that group. Uh, so after 20 years of building, building really good housing, we shifted our focus to think about systems. Uh, and we launched something uh, called the 100,000 Homes Campaign nationally. Uh, and if that sounds familiar, it's because it was actually modeled off of the 100,000 Lives Campaign here at IHI. And the goal was really, could we use quality improvement tools to streamline and improve the systems by which the most vulnerable people experiencing homelessness in our country would get access to housing? Um, if you think about a standard community, no one group or agency, as Mignon kind of mentioned, owns this problem. Uh, it's usually distributed responsibility across a number of different groups, and the, the money and the resourcing is distributed as well. And so our goal was, could we actually help communities come together and improve and kind of straighten that line across all those different groups such that they could get more and more people into housing over time? Um, the hard goal of 100,000 Homes Campaign was to get 100,000 chronically homeless people into housing in four years, and we did that. The communities in the campaign actually housed 105,000 people in four years. Uh, and you can also see uh, in this slide, for those of your listeners that are looking at these slides, that um, the rate at which communities were moving those folks into housing accelerated as well. Communities went from housing about uh, a little over 1% of their chronically homeless folks every month to housing over 5% of that population every month. And yet, at the end of this really exciting campaign, when we looked at chronic homelessness nationally, uh, the number of people experiencing chronic homelessness by best federal estimates had only gone down about 15%, which was really nothing like a one-to-one correlation uh, for all the folks that had moved into housing. So we realized as an organization that we had to kind of pivot again uh, and and try to redefine this problem differently. Um, So in early 2015, we asked communities if they would be willing to join us in an effort not to count up to a big number, 
but to figure out what it would take to count down across their whole communities to zero, which I'll just say is a really different challenge. Instead of looking at just that one data point, how many people are we housing every month, you really need to look at five or six data points that let you account for things like inflow into your system, where people are getting stuck. It's a much more complex problem. Uh, so I just wanted to run through kind of our, our working theory of change right now, uh, and then I'll talk briefly about our results before I let some of my colleagues talk a little bit more. But we've really divided the work into kind of key, three key drivers of impact. The first is um, real-time data. On the 100,000 Homes campaign, I think we realized we had built really excellent feedback loops with communities for how many people they were housing, but they didn't have a feedback loop for how many people were actually experiencing homelessness at any given time. So if your goal was really reductions, you didn't have a way to actually measure the effects of what you were doing on that ultimate outcome. Um, so we've invested a lot of work in helping communities get real-time, person-specific data on chronic homelessness uh, in their community, and also veteran homelessness, which is the second group this effort is focused on. Uh, from there, when you have real-time data, you can actually start doing quality improvement, right? And these are the things we all know. How do you actually run tests of change uh, and measure them? And once you have that data, you can actually see the effects of what you're trying and testing on how many people are experiencing homelessness in those groups every month. Is that number going down? Do we have fewer people who are homeless this month than we did last month? And if not, what do we need to change? And then the third piece of the work is really um, we have thought a lot about if 70 communities are at the table, what are we going to do with a megaphone that big, right? That gives us a pretty big voice. So how do we use this movement to actually drive scale? Uh, we've been focused a lot on storytelling. How do we change the way people think about homelessness and what's possible? And also about driving some of the key policy changes that we think uh, are necessary to help communities kind of get the last mile. Uh, but before I kind of turn it back over, I just wanted to focus for a second on the results because I'd really like people to see kind of where we are as of today. Um, seven communities now have ended uh, chronic or, uh, veteran homelessness, excuse me, outright. Uh, we have a really rigorous, measurable standard uh, for that. Seven communities have achieved that goal. And three of the communities we work with have achieved an end to chronic homelessness. I think it's really significant because our theory of change is based on the idea that people really don't believe this is possible and that the behaviors for doing this are actually out there. It's not an unsolved problem. But if people don't believe it's possible to end homelessness across their community, then they won't take up those behaviors. So we are trying right now to get to a place where we have 40 proof points on the board, 40 communities that can say they've measurably ended chronic or veteran homelessness. And we think if we can do that, we'll start to see uh, communities feeling like they don't have an excuse for not doing the things that they need to do uh, to get to zero anymore. Um, so that's why I think this is really, really exciting. Uh, so that's a bit about who we are and, and kind of our journey, uh, kind of the results that we're working with right now. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Uh, all right, we're going to see if we can sort of add uh, to the texture of what's going on. And by the way, on this slide, measuring success nationally, I see that for some reason, some numbers sort of <laughs> shifted into some uh, of the actual um, text there. So we'll, we'll get that figured out. But I think people can sort of see the very impressive work there. All right, thanks, Jake. All right, Nate, uh, let me turn to you now. Yeah. And... Um, I think already Jake referred to 70 communities, I believe, and 
right. would love to uh, kind of give us a sense of uh, where and who some of those communities are. And then I'm curious, what are they doing? What have they signed on to here? Because uh, these are the yeah. folks who are on, I'm sure inter- they're interacting with real people uh, and uh, you can't move these numbers at all uh, without these, uh, I'm sure, um, pretty dynamic uh, interactions. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Madge. Yeah. So Built for Zero right now is organized as a collaborative. We call it the Built for Zero Collaborative, uh, which is adapted to the version of that model that we went to by HI. Uh, within that collaborative structure, obviously, we use the model for improvement and quality improvement approaches. Uh, but it's really anchored by a collective impact approach in the way that we both organize communities and sort of guide local leadership to form teams of folks that they think they need at the table to, to really end veteran or chronic homelessness. Uh, the, the collaborative has four cohorts that represent sort of our, our roadmap for how communities are best understanding for how a community moves from this first step all the way to sustaining functional zero. So first, a community team that comes together, like I just described, and that sort of collective impact model. I will start in the by nameless cohort, where they focus on putting processes and infrastructure in place to create this kind of centralized list, this shared list that's ideally updated in real time and represents everyone experiencing homelessness in that community and provides the data uh, that Jake mentioned earlier that's so necessary to understand if they're making improvement. Second, they have, when they have this in place, they move to this next cohort where they're using that data and focusing on actively reducing the number of individuals that are experiencing homelessness. Uh, and once their data begins to show that they're within about six months or striking distance of actually ending homelessness for the population that they're focused on, they move to a cohort called the last mile and join other communities that are in that kind of sprint towards uh, the finish line. And finally, communities reaching functional zero are invited to join a cohort focused on sustaining those gains, uh, reaching functional zero and sustaining that. In each of the cohorts, you can see that in this picture on the left-hand side, we ask them to set aimed in four-month cycles, action cycles, as the collaborative model lays out, uh, that they think will move them to the next cohort, get them kind of to the next threshold. And on the right-hand side, you can see what we think of as our sort of pipeline or internal goals across the collaborative that represents the pace at which we hope communities can move through these phases and continue to make those proof points over time. So I was just going to unpack each of these a little bit. Um, if you go to the next slide, in, in the by name list cohort, uh, like we've mentioned several times now, one of the key outcomes of that work is really the ability to report data uh, at least monthly and hopefully more often than that. You can see the six data points that we ask communities to report to us each month. Um, and if you go to the next slide, you can see over time as communities have really dug in to the, I'll say, very um, non-glamorous work of building the kind of basic infrastructure in which the outcome is data um, we've seen significant progress since 2000, since January of 2016 on getting what we think of as a quality by name list. We, we benchmark or sort of uh, quantify what a quality by name list means uh, through a scorecard we've developed uh, with federal with federal national experts and with local communities that gives them a kind of quantified look on a zero to ten scale of where they are towards reaching that quality threshold. In the reduced cohort, uh, communities use this data, of course, to set meaningful aims and corresponding goals around reducing their actively homeless numbers. So now they know how many people are homeless in my community month over month. 
Um, and this usually includes looking at and setting goals around not just how they're reducing those numbers, but the things that drive the reduction or increase of actively homeless numbers. So the rate of housing placement, uh, the rate at which they're reducing inflow, as well as reducing the length of time it takes to move people into permanent housing. We, we do provide a performance management infrastructure that's uh, specific to each community so that when they report their data into us, uh, it, it feeds back into uh, a visualization uh, that shows sort of over time their progress and helps them to see sort of their baselines for setting goals. We also uh, provide some tools uh, that help them to set goals based on that data that they that, that data reporting in monthly and sort of the historical picture and averages that that creates. Um, and so here on the slide, you can see Chicago has made significant reduction in the actively homeless number of veterans uh, in their community and, and reducing the actively homeless number of homeless veterans over the last year and a half, which is really significant on its own, but in particular significant as a really large community, one of the only large communities we see making this kind of uh, progress. And so it's communities like Chicago that inform uh, a change package that we've created and continue to evolve over time and pull in change ideas and content as we're learning. Uh, and that change package is available to all the cohorts, all the communities. It's organized around sort of our local theory of change for a community in terms of what we see communities doing to end homelessness. And so communities can draw on that resource in addition to, of course, their own uh, great new ideas, which are always coming, uh, to plan and run tests of change to their system, really use that QI framework. Um, and, and drive and drive towards their next goal. Um, and so as communities move into the last, uh, I'll just say briefly, um, as communities reach that threshold of being within six months of the goal or, or uh, in the last stretch of getting to functional zero, um, we do provide some more intensive support from our team, or at least we make that available to them. We also pull in national experts and our, our federal partners uh, who are very interested in helping those communities get, get to the finish line and end homelessness. Um, so just in closing, you know, I, I think the legacy of this movement is really underpinned by the ability of communities to not just reach this audacious goal, uh, to reach this finish line that has seemed impossible, but to demonstrate that the systems they've built along the way are strong enough to sustain functional zero over time. And so the communities in this last cohort, um, in a lot of ways, are the trailblazers that are discovering and painting a picture of what it means to sustainably hold these gains. Here you can see, uh, I think, if we have the, yes, the run chart of Gulf Coast, uh, Mississippi, where they not only sustained functional zero since September of 2015 when they got there, but have continued to drive down those numbers almost all the way to a hard zero on veteran homelessness, which is, um, which is just fantastic uh, to see. So they're, they're just a great example of one of those communities really leading the way and showing us what this looks like. Uh, so Matt, just in thinking about your initial question, I, you know, talk a lot about these sort of tangible commitments we ask communities to make when they join Built for Zero. But I'd just say more broadly, what they're really signing on to is a willingness to come together as a community to work towards a shared commitment to end homelessness and being a part of this much larger community doing the same thing. Um, no doubt. Uh, thank you, uh, Nate. And, and the numbers and uh, what you've shown here with these run charts are really 
um, impressive. Um, I want to ask uh, before, lots of questions already coming in on the chat, which is terrific. I want to make sure people see that uh, Vicky here in the studio helps us out on WHI. She put a link in that shows you a really nifty map on the Community Solutions and Built for Zero websites, and you can see where the communities are around the country. So I'm going to just, uh, I don't know if this is a question that throws back to you, Nate, or maybe Beth can pick it up, who's going to share some remarks as well. But I'll use myself as kind of a guinea pig and sort of my crude, perhaps, understanding of things. I think if you ask the average person, uh, what's the problem? Why can't we reduce uh, more uh, homeless? Now, here you're targeting veteran homelessness and chronic homelessness uh, in, in particular. Um, I think people might say insufficient housing, uh, just, you know, uh, don't have the places, uh, inability of the homeless individuals to maintain that uh, an apartment or a room or whatever has been found because of all kinds of uh, corresponding problems uh, and issues. And some might say the resistance uh, among uh, from coming from some of the folks uh, who have actually been living on the streets sometimes uh, the longest and sometimes in the hardest way, uh, that this is, um, you know, very, very hard to make that adjustment. So I know that asks a lot of different things, but uh, while we're looking at these numbers and data points, uh, something else is happening, uh, you know, besides commitment on the part of uh, people who are, you know, engaged in this big initiative. Um, definitely the methodology, uh, and how you're tracking makes, seems to make a huge difference, but, um, what is the, what is it also perhaps that people have not understood, uh, about, um, these populations maybe, uh, that is also a feature of what you're doing? Beth, is that so, something you want to pick up? Would... Who's that? Yeah, I'm happy to go or Beth, if you want to jump in. <laughs> Go ahead, Nate. I can always pick up where you leave off. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So I think historically, the way uh, housing, access to housing and homeless services have worked is that the person who is most capable and most able to wait outside for maybe one or two days to get in line for a place or to keep their cell phone turned on so that two years later when their name comes up on a housing list, um, they'll pick up the phone and answer. And it was sort of like we had this flipped system in which the people who needed this help the most were most incapable of navigating a system where the system was not designed to give them access. And so I think what started to change is this idea that we didn't talk about today, but this idea of a coordinated entry system in which a community agrees um, to a shared way of evaluating people's vulnerability um, and looking across the portfolio of housing and services that they have and beginning to match people based on that vulnerability to the appropriate housing intervention. Um, and so I, I think that's one shift that's happening um, that is addressing the very sort of real challenges that, that you brought up, Madge. And Beth, I'd let you share anything else that comes to mind. Okay. Thanks a lot. I think that's it. Go ahead, Beth. Yeah, yes, I welcome. Think that's exactly right. Thank, thank you. It's great to be here. I think the other big shift is one that Jake alluded to at the beginning in our own thinking, which is this move away from seeing homelessness as a technical problem solved through a housing placement and really understanding it 
it, it as a complex social problem that is very dynamic. Um, it, it's always changing and that our systems have to have the data to be responsive and, and, and be able to solve the problem in the same way. So it, there's no silver bullet. It requires this approach that you, you guys have taken in healthcare. Um, I think really understanding real-time information, running small tests of change, seeing what's moving the needle. I think though that way of looking at this problem and not uh, it's not just the application of best practices, so not just housing first, not just uh, motivational interviewing and outreach. Those are really important strategies, but seeing it for its full complexity and, and having the data and information you need to know if all the things you're doing are adding up to change or not. And I think that has been the big shift in communities that we're seeing progress now in is not just throwing more resources and more technical solutions at it, but really bringing complex problem-solving skills to, to to bear on the problem. Okay, thanks a lot. Well, we can uh, fill this out a little bit more uh, when we get to questions, but I want to also give you an opportunity, uh, Beth, uh, to share, uh, some, some additional, uh, thoughts, uh, to those of, um, Nate, uh, and Jake's, uh, I, my question to you was, you know, about challenges, uh, that you're facing. And mm-hmm. then we're going to, uh, uh, hear some thoughts from Ninyan about healthcare in particular. Go ahead. Thanks. Great. Great. Well, I mean, as you can imagine, we, we've, there's been a lot of failing forward that, that our team has done that we've done with local communities as we've taken on the challenge of figuring out what it takes to count down to zero. Um, there, there are three key challenges I think that we're facing now as we think about the future of this work and, um, where it goes from here. The first one is will. Um, I think one of the key things we have learned, and I'm sure all of you have seen it in your work, um, and how fundamental it is, is, uh, the communities that are successful, have been successful, have built the will they need to not only make progress towards these goals, but to sustain that work. Uh, the woman you see, um, Mary Simons in this picture is the leader in Gulf Coast. And you can imagine the incredible will it has taken for her to not only convince her community that, that we can end homelessness and we should and we should change our systems, but to hold those gains over time and start to spread it to other populations. So we really think a lot about the challenge of for our communities who are still struggling to make progress, for communities across the country who have not yet started to tackle this problem effectively, um, what does it look like for us to really help support communities to build that will, bring in additional partners they need um, to, to affect change at the local level? And this is also true at the national level. Uh, we have benefited a great deal as a, a national initiative um, from the commitment and will of the previous administration to not only set really ambitious national goals around ending homelessness, but to bring resources to bear. Uh, it, as you can imagine, in the current um, uncertain political environment, uh, we're at this place where we we need uh, new leaders at the table. We need to sustain the will and commitment of the leaders we have in order to hold the ground, um, to sustain the gains that we've made, and also push further. And I think that is, is something that keeps up the keeps us up at night, both at the local level 
and the national level. Um, the, the second challenge, which for me is the most exciting and interesting one and play, maybe the place where a lot of conversation happens between us and the folks on this call, is around how do we start to move upstream and to work with other systems. Nate mentioned the real-time data communities now have on their inflow and their outflow. And one of the things that we've been able to see very clearly as we've looked at that information is that inflow is, is having such a disproportionate impact on communities' ability to get to these goals. And even when communities are making progress in reducing homelessness, as you see with Chicago, they, they are seeing month-over-month reductions, and that has required an incredible amount of work. They're still not moving the needle on inflow. And so how can we be strategic um, in our own sector but start to push outside the walls of our system to connect with other systems to use this real-time data to, to, to run small tests of change around what would real reductions in the number of people coming into homelessness look like? How do we use the data and what we know about quality improvement um, to do that. Um, and I, I think there, there's just huge opportunity here to have shared accountability um, and, and figure out new ways to work across these systems. Um, and then the last challenge we face is scale. So as Jake mentioned and we've talked about, we have these clear proof points. We have 10 communities that have either ended veteran homelessness or chronic homelessness. And our our goal really is to take that to scale. What does it look like for 300 communities to have done it? What kind of partners um, and leaders will we need um, to bring into this movement in order to get to that goal? And then as exciting as those proof points are, to be honest, we don't have a proof point of a large city doing it yet. So, you know, Chicago's not yet there yet. Somewhere like Denver or Detroit, we need that proof point, not only to learn what it takes to get to these goals, but also to change the story nationally around what is possible. I think Jake mentioned this too. Most people, I think, don't believe we can actually end homelessness or don't even know that it's happening. And so these uh, proof points in large cities have disproportionate impact on believability, right? When you when you hear yeah. Chicago has done something, you just you think about the problem really differently than when you hear a Gulf Coast has done it, even though they have, right? So uh, we, we really think a lot about how do we help these large cities who are working with a very large-scale problem and very complex systems work differently. What new ideas do we need and new partners do we need for that kind of work? Because um, all of this is adding up to uh, the end state we want, which is communities where um, homelessness does not feel inevitable, that is clearly solvable, and it's just unacceptable that we wouldn't tackle it um, and apply all of the problem-solving uh, skills that we have to it. Okay. Thanks, Beth. And I guess message to anyone on uh, the WIHI from a large city, <laughs> feel free uh, uh, to get in touch and we'll have some contact information. Uh, it's actually on everyone's bio slide, but uh, we'll also repeat that. All right. Just be, uh, thank you for your questions. I think actually some of them, uh, at least the last couple here are kind of perfect coming from healthcare, uh, people wondering about points of uh, influence and points of entry, whether it's the ED, uh, managed care, uh, system, uh, managed care, uh, you know, environments, others, uh, opportunities uh, to engage with the homeless population. I think it's a perfect segue for Ninyan, who has some thoughts about uh, health care and where health care uh, might enter into this situation if not involved already. Thanks, mm -hmm. Ninyan. Thanks, Madge. So clearly you can see from from Nate and Jake and Beth that this work is really powerful. It's showing you that it can be done, that it is being done, that a seemingly intractable, intractable problem that you 
could hear about, that's just something that you would shake your head and like, well, we're never going to end that. Well, it actually can in a, in a very scientific way. Um, and yet when I think about the communities that are involved, I don't see in every single one of those communities the healthcare system, which are huge players in every single community um, at the table in this, in this effort, which I think that that's a huge lost opportunity that this is going on and that hospitals and health systems in these communities can play a part in ending homelessness in their community. Um, and it's going to take some shifts. And so I have three provocations that when we've been thinking about this here at IHI and talking about this with the team from Community Solutions and saying, we we know that, that these two organizations with our heads together, we can do something really powerful in engaging the healthcare system. Um, we've talked about these three three provocations. One is to move from pathology to vision. So, and you heard a little bit about this idea of moving from um, housing placements to a vision of ending homelessness, and suddenly the data look different, the efforts look different, the co- quality of the conversations and the people who come to the table are different. And we w- in healthcare would need to move from a, a sort of the cycle of this is the way it's been done, and what I care about is the patient at the point of care and making sure that they have a place to go when they walk out of our ED, <laughs> um, as opposed to what David Cox, who was in, who just chatted in a, a wonderful question into the chat, noting that he said, I work for a large safety net medical center, and we see chronically homeless folks pass through our ED. We're thinking that with the right approach, the ED encounter would be a good place to engage our chronically homeless patients to consider accepting permanent supportive housing. And that is a very different question of how might we, as opposed to answering the question of how might we figure out where this person goes when they leave our ED. <laughs> Um, and it's that kind of shift in thinking of moving from, well, that's not really healthcare's um, issue. Our job is to deliver great quality care while they're in our walls, um, to really thinking through what are the ways that that we can use all of our assets to really end homelessness. That is, that is a brain transplant, really, um, and we can see it happening in other sectors. And I think it's possible for healthcare. So that's the first one: is to really move from pathology to vision. The second is to move from contribution to accountability. Um, John, if you can move to the next slide, there's a movement that's happening um, in healthcare, and some people have seen this seminal work that came out of the Democracy Collaborative. Um, a report that Tyler Norris, formerly of KP, and now um, at the at the Wellbeing Trust, um, and Ted Howard at the Democracy Collaborative produced around um, what they introduce as hospitals as an anchor institution, realizing that there the thought that our only influence in a community is to care for patients um, is so nearsighted, um, and w- if we were to really think about the full. Um, economic, em- employer, um, community asset-based power that a hospital has, what could we do? And that would require us to, to adopt what they call an anchor mission. So and that's up on the slide here, a commitment to consciously apply the long-term place-based economic power of the institution in combination with its human and intellectual resources to better the long-term welfare of the community in which the institution is anchored. And I know that this is also happening in higher education. They're thinking about themselves as... as um, anchor institutions in the community as well, but I think that there's a lot of opportunity for healthcare. When you think about all the assets that um, a hospital brings to the table on the next slide, rather than just a deliverer of care, in many of these communities, healthcare is the largest employer. Um, They purchase food and they provide food. Um, They are investors. They're insurers. 
they engage in community health needs assessment and have a unique view with the feet on the street to know what the needs actually are, they have a community benefit pot of money that they are required, and especially the, the, some folks, they will lose their IRS status unless they use their community benefit in ways that help the community. Um, they can be an advocate. They can be a policymaker. Um, there are so many different ways in which uh, a healthcare system can really be of influence. And this report, the seminal work, and I encourage you to check it out. Um, we actually included the link in the chat in the chat. Thanks, Vicki. Um, the economic power of America's hospitals. So just in procurement alone, $340 billion in goods and services. Total expenditures is a $782 billion. Investment portfolios conservatively estimated for hospitals, $500 billion. Employees, healthcare employees, 5.5 million full and part-time. That's 4% of the total national employment. And the total community benefit, this is where this starts to come into play. The total community benefit estimated is $62 billion. The power that a healthcare system has to really think differently, what would that look like if healthcare were to move from pathology to vision in this? And, and I think that it looks like this. So the, the, on the next slide, I'm going to show you a bit of a transition of the way moving from contribution to accountability. So thinking about, you know, can we do some good things like work on access to care, support some community organizations. You know, we're going to partner with Meals on Wheels and the Alzheimer's Association to better deliver services to our older than 65 population. You know, we're going to do some good um, and educate people about health behaviors to moving from let's do some good things to really making it count. And I think that that has been the shift of probably the last 10 years, moving from a hospital and the community benefit arm of the hospital um, actually being in the same room. You know, for a long time, many healthcare systems are community benefit. They they were in a, a office at the end of the hall, and they didn't talk to anybody who were at the who was at the in the C-suite level of the hospital. To coming together to think about, can we make it count and really make an impact? Can we truly address the, the social determinants? Now we see some funding coming out of CMMI, at CMS. Can we actually test some new models of what it means to move from what counts to making it count? And then what this work can show you is that there needs to be another shift which is from making account to actually feeling like we are a stakeholder that is accountable for this population. And we together own the homelessness issue in our community, and we have a unique contribution to make, leveraging all the different assets. And that would mean thinking through what ways can we move money, what ways can we um, reinvest. Um, that's actually the third um, provocation is to return the money. So the, the final slide, John, if you can go to it. Is to think about, in addition to all the ways that you could be influential through all of our in-kind assets, we have case managers that can lend time. There's loads of different ways if you're creative of how healthcare systems can get involved. But one of the things that, um, and many of you guys have seen this in the last couple years out of the IHI Leadership Alliance, Don Berwick and others, and Derek Feely at IHI, came up with 10 new rules for accelerating healthcare, and we call them the radical redesign rules. And you can see it's actually these 11 could be mapped almost entirely to this effort to end homelessness. But one of the big ones is to return the money, that if we're working on shared savings together as a healthcare system to remove wasteful costs out of the system, where are we going to put that money? We could put it right back into healthcare to deliver services, or we could actually move upstream and thinking about using that money to go back into wages, to go back into housing, to go back into social services, moving it from it's not just my money, it is our community money, and we're going to free this money from 
this uh, sector lines. I mean, Beth and I were just having a conversation earlier this week about, you know, it seems like there's no more there's no more resources within housing to solve this issue, but there are actually resources in the community. If we stopped using sector lines, we do have the money, we do have the assets. Everything we need to solve this problem is here, and those three things, unless we move from pathology division as as a healthcare sector, unless we move from contribution to accountability in our role in the community. And unless we think about how do we actually return the money, that if we're sucking up all the costs from the system, um, then it's our, our burden to bear to return the money to, to upstream, upstream areas. Thank you, Ninyan. Um, <laughs> well said, and I think it just reinforces everything we've heard during this hour. Uh, I want to acknowledge that we ate into some of our Q&A time uh, on WHI today, but it seemed very, very important, uh, seems very important to kind of get a lot of this before you, and I hope everyone will take the time after the show to kind of look through these slides again. And please, once we've got the archive version up there uh, on our website, or you can find it as a podcast, uh, share it with others, uh, and along with the resources to sort of spread the word about opportunities here. And you did hear from all the community solutions folks here about a strong desire uh, not only to work with healthcare, but also to get some things going in some major cities um, to demonstrate what's possible there. Uh, a lot of the questions that uh, have come about through the chat, at least, it looks like most of them have been answered. There was one particular question about the veteran population. Uh, somebody had wanted, Carol had wanted to know whether uh, there's a kind of a triage, excuse me, triage uh, process for placement uh, in terms of how you view a group of individuals, perhaps some uh, maybe having more health uh, issues uh, than another. Who would like to address that? Yeah, I, this is Jake. I'd be happy to take that one. Thank you. Um, it, it's such an important question. I think that was one of the biggest early shifts. It, it, that that first campaign we ran, the 100,000 Homes campaign, this was a huge piece of that work, was getting communities to focus on um, what we, we call sometimes just the most vulnerable folks in their communities. It's a lot easier to provide housing and services to somebody uh, who has less acute needs uh, and what the research shows is that oftentimes when we do that, we're actually subsidizing people or system-involving people who actually would be likely to solve their own problems through their own networks if we gave them a little more time or a less resource-intensive intervention. And so there was a lot of um, uh, kind of poor optimization of, of resources in these limited resource-limited environments that was happening. Um, so what our communities do now is um, they use across the whole community a common assessment tool uh, for a lot of communities, uh, this is just a simple survey. It takes 15 minutes, can be administered on the street, you know, just as easily as it could be in a hospital, emergency department, or at a program. Uh, and it asks a series of questions that just, you know, help help that community understand both what somebody's kind of dealing with and sort of how acute their needs are, but also of the kind of available housing interventions. What is the the least expensive or kind of the most cost-effective housing option that would still reliably end that person's homelessness. Um, so typically, uh, this looks like just a, a connection to affordable housing, which would be for someone that's really low need. So can we just help you, you know, maybe in a, a one-time way find, uh, you know, uh, just an apartment and you can kind of take it from there. 
uh, or what we call rapid rehousing, which is um, like short-term support. Often this is kind of cash assistance over a couple months, a, a short-term rental subsidy that tapers off over time, just kind of a financial reset. And that's all that a, a large group of folks need. And then for this, you know, 10 to 12% of folks that are chronically homeless or that are kind of really, their needs are very acute, um, recommending them for permanent supportive housing. And that's, you know, permanent apartment where we're going to subsidize your rent uh, for as long as you need that with no restrictions. And we're going to provide some some basic supportive services, connection to health services, things like that. Um, that is the most expensive of the interventions. And yet the cost savings are considerable when that intervention is targeted really well to the most vulnerable folks in your community. Um, when communities provide permanent supportive housing to a person experiencing chronic homelessness, Typically, uh, it, the benefit to taxpayers across a variety of systems that's returned is somewhere in the neighborhood of a 30 to 40% cost reduction overall, even after uh, accounting for the cost of someone's housing. And health systems actually are, are where most of that savings happens. That's not all in one place, of course. Uh, some of that savings is, is Medicaid, sometimes it's county level. Um, but uh, I think there's a real incentive for health players to get involved in making sure communities are using triage tools and targeting resources to the most vulnerable folks that they're finding. Okay, thank you very much. Um, somebody has asked, I was wondering what the definition of inactive is when you analyze inflow. That was on uh, one of the, uh, I think, graphs uh, that we looked at before. Who wants to explain that? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. Uh, this is Beth. So uh, we, so inactive, as you can imagine, and this may happen in, in healthcare systems too. Like we, the goal of knowing everyone by name, right? You go out and get to know everyone on the street and then shelter by name, and then sometimes those people disappear, where right? you can't find them again. Um, and so that might be because they moved out of that city, or maybe they went into hospital, or maybe they. Um, moved back home with a family member. Um, but so to account for the fact that sometimes people um, exit the system or, or the outreach team and the, and the sheltered system, despite its best efforts, can't find that person again, there's a, a term called inactive. So after, and generally the policy is, or the approach is after 90 days of best efforts to locate that person again after first meeting them, they move to an inactive list. So the idea is they, they may or may not come back. And if they come back again, then we will know more about the episodic nature of homelessness in our communities. And if they don't, then we haven't spent a lot of effort um, trying to find someone who, who has exited the system. So that's where the inactive piece is. So you might have people who are in your outflow because they've moved to inactive. You haven't done anything to house them. They're not a housing placement. They just, you can't find them anymore. And then you'll see on the inflow, you have a group of people who've returned from inactive. So like, hey, this person just came back after us not seeing them for three months. And that is equally really important information about how a community systems work and therefore what sort of strategies and interventions they would need to use to see reduction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Quick question, uh, Beth. Maybe I'll ask this to you. What is the distinction or the distinguishing characteristics between being homeless or being chronically homeless? It's both, it's both length of time and disability. So for folks who've been homeless a year or more or had uh, four or more episodes in the last three years, that's considered chronic. So it's just 
how how long they've been homeless and and a disability. So that's that's the difference. And chronic homelessness is a place. One of the reasons to tackle that first also is that chronic homelessness is really a function of us having a really bad system that lets people be homeless a very long time. And so the idea is you can get to hard zero on chronic homelessness because most of inflow into chronic homelessness is just coming from the universe of homeless individuals. And so what's really exciting is that the communities that have gotten to zero on chronic homelessness have done so by not only housing their chronic population, um, who are people who are with very high needs, who have been homeless a very long time, but also housing knows that if we don't do anything, they are going to become chronically homeless. And so we see ending chronic homelessness as kind of a Trojan horse into ending all individual homelessness. Okay, thank you. Um, let me just, uh, before I go to John here in this slide, let me just ask, uh, somebody is asking, Eva is asking about key features or drivers of instances where institutions are shifting money upstream, uh, have become a reality. I don't know if that's something, uh, Ninyan, you could address in some ways where there's a call to action here for more institutions, particularly healthcare, uh, to do so. Um, but are there... Uh, some some examples or some features that we know about. Yeah, we're just seeing we're just starting to see some pilot projects, and I welcome Jake and Beth and, and Nate if you guys have in other sectors where you've seen this happen. But in healthcare, there've been um, some cool pilots um, around shared savings, wherein you can make some partnerships um, with your community stakeholders to say if we can work on, let's say, we partner with an employer. And if we can work on the health of your employees um, and save some money that way, we will jointly commit to reinvest that saving, calculate it, and reinvest that savings back into the community, into things like early childhood development and um, and building a community center. We've seen a couple different pilots across the U.S. in that. I think that the Pathways Community Hub model, and certainly Vicki, we can grab a, a link and put that in the chat, that's actually um, – developing pathways to actually be reimbursed for upstream determinants. Um, and so all those things are, are really at the prototyping and pilot level. They're not at the spread level. Um, but hopefully that's the that's the hope is that in the next few years we're actually going to be able to, to have some structures and some systems in place to be able to have the incentives right and to remove the disincentives to be able to move the money upstream. Thanks. Uh, was somebody from uh, Community Solutions? I don't know if that's uh, Nate or Jake. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think, um, you know, ideally, yes, you know, health systems would be thinking about how to invest their money uh, in upstream outcomes as well. Um, I think we'd love to see that. We've seen some good examples in Orlando, for example, there's a hospital system that's actually paying for housing for its frequent flyers and, and testing to see if that results in, in cost savings for them. Um, but sometimes it's not about money. There's a great example um, in uh, Fresno, California, where uh, the team came together at one of our learning sessions, and they were looking at their veterans' data, and they realized, you know, they didn't really have an inflow problem. Uh, almost all of their inflow was coming through one hospital in that community. And in their assessment, a lot of the folks being referred into the homeless services system for that hospital didn't really need to be there. It could be served in other mainstream ways. And so they, they worked with that hospital to target training at the whole staff across the whole hospital on how you actually – hurt people, which is to say how you keep people out of the homeless services system when they don't need to be there. Uh, and they are now grounding that in quality improvement so that even without a significant financial investment, they're able to see if just by collaborating around the data in new ways like that, they can bend the curve 
on inflow and affecting upstream outcomes. So I just want to say if there are folks out there that are thinking, you know, we have an interest in this, we'd love to be involved, and investing our money, you know, at least right away, that may be a heavy lift. Um, I would really encourage you to get to the table with the homeless services system in your community anyway and start looking at this by-name list data if you haven't uh, and seeing if there are ways that you, with your expertise as a health system, uh, may have ideas about places to intervene that folks in the homeless services system aren't having because they're not as expert in your system. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, John, uh, upcoming program here at iChai. Yeah. Th- thanks, Madge. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit today about uh, people with complex needs and the challenges they face, uh, including homelessness. And, and, and when those high-need patients require medical attention, they often encounter a healthcare system that's poorly uh, equipped to uh, coordinate, and it's, it's inefficient, it's expensive, uh, and this can lead to poor outcomes. Um, so to help you and your organization meet the needs of these patients, uh, iChai is proud to offer redesigning care for patients with complex needs, which is a virtual expedition that starts in January of uh, 2018. ICHI virtual expeditions are action-focused online training programs for teams, and they last up to four months. Um, this expedition will help your team understand the specific needs of a population, match effective interventions to meet the needs of that population, and identify your organization's strategic considerations so that good work goes to scale and uh, becomes sustainable. Uh, redesigning care for patients with complex needs is the name of our expedition. It starts on January 11th, uh, and we hope your, your organization will participate. Uh, for more information, visit IHI.org expeditions. All right. Thanks. John. Okay, well, we're definitely coming to the top of the hour, so we're not going to have time to go all the way around the horn, but maybe on behalf of Community Solutions, can I ask you, Jake, Jake, excuse me, to say some parting words uh, here, a final word, and maybe uh, from Ninyan, if we could get that slide up there again, John, that tells everybody how to get in touch with folks. Very important. But uh, Jake, uh, some final thoughts for this hour. Sure. I mean, what an exciting opportunity to be having, starting to have these conversations with people in the healthcare space. I think there's so much wisdom and expertise that that, that folks in this space have, that folks in our space um, would love to be connected to and, and bringing to the table. So it's just really encouraging to see so many folks here. Um, one other opportunity we haven't talked about, if if, um, if you're, you know, working in a healthcare system and thinking, I wish my community could get into this kind of rhythm of using quality improvement like we do in the healthcare space to think about driving down homelessness. Um, there may be opportunities to bring folks from that homeless services system in your community into the collaborative model that we're running uh, or to engage them in some of the insights that uh, our communities are, are starting to land on. And we would really love to have those conversations just about how we can support all of you. Um, there's a lot of talk about how healthcare can support us, but I think we're really interested in making that a two-way exchange. Um, so please get in touch. Our emails are in the slides, and we'd love to really talk with any one of you uh, about ways this can move forward in your community. Fantastic. Uh, thank you, Jake. And Beth is reminding everyone in the chat that Jake and she will be at the IHI forum. You're going to be geeking out and uh, hope to connect with some oh, yeah. of you there. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a lot of, so let's continue this uh, conversation and collaboration. And again, I want to encourage uh, as many of you as possible to share uh, today's program and the material. Such rich work going on and so important. Uh, Ninyan, big thank you to you. Uh, uh, Ninyan sort of flew by my office and stopped and said, this is really something we should talk about on WHI. And when she does that, I know she's right. And so I want to thank you. Any final um, thought from you at all for today's show? No. I need to take myself off mute. No, I think that there's just huge possibility here. I think that 
Um, we have lots of capability within healthcare to, to use the the QI capability we already have to join this movement. I think if you're interested in whether or not this movement is going on in your own community, check out the map of, um, of the movement. And just as Jake said, there's ways to get involved in using these tools to help end homelessness in your community. So any ways that we can connect you to that work, we're happy to do here at IHI. Thanks, All right. Madge. All right. Thank you, Ninyan. And thank you, wonderful panel and very, very active community who tuned in today and on chat. Very quickly, next up on WIHI on October 26, switching gears a bit, a new emergency checklist for office-based surgery. Very, very interesting uh, innovation there. So I hope you'll uh, consider that. And info is uh, about to go up on the website. Reminder that you can download the chat and any slides we used. You'll be prompted. Ask that question if you'd like to. As you get off the WebEx today, you'll also find all those materials, including the audio, on our website uh, tomorrow. Uh, don't forget about the WI. IHI podcast. Uh, you just have to subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes and uh, you're all set. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Uh, folks there will be happy to point you in the right direction. Great group helps make WIHI possible. I can never forget to say their names on the show. John Gothier, Matt Morris, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val Weber, Mina Hadley, and Kiki Yee. And as always, it's my privilege to host this program that's still, after, since 2009, about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm so glad that we spent some time talking about reducing homelessness today. I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good afternoon. Thank you.